Ashley's. My name is Liam, one of the pastors here. Uh, we're going to be looking at God's Word now uh, in a bit more detail. We're going to turn to Luke chapter 18. So if you'd like to turn there, Luke chapter 18. Again, if you need one of the Pew Bibles, pop your hand up and someone will bring one to you. Uh, the reading on, in, in these uh, Burgundy Bibles is 1051, page 1051. And uh, just as we're turning there, let me lead us in prayer. Our Father, uh, your Son, the all-glorious, preeminent man of faith and of prayer, prayed for us that we, as we study your word, would be sanctified by it. Lord, thank you that you answer his faithful prayer. We make it ours today as well, in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's read Luke 18, uh, reading from verse 1. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, in a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused. But finally, he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? He, will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Amen. This is God's word. Well, prayer is one of the greatest privileges of the Christian life, yet something so easy to give up. I wonder if you can identify with that experience. It's one of the first things to go when faith falters. Take Connor, for example. Connor used to be on fire for God, reading his Bible every day. He used to pray regularly through concentric circles in his prayer diary, starting with himself and then with his family and then moving out to church family and so on. But he's 36 now, and as the years have passed by, he's seen life go on for others in ways that he feels like he's been denied by God. He wants to get married, he's tired of being a best man, he just wants to be a groom. And a year ago, he, he, he surprised himself at how much his heart ached for the things that he's regularly asked God for, but not got. But now, today, he's surprised by how unfeeling his heart is towards God himself. Does God even care, he asks. And the prayer diary gathers dust. And then there's Jilly. Jilly has prayed for her grown-up kids for years, but they've actually shown nothing but contempt for her faith in Christ. Now they're having kids of her own. Jilly can see the gap in their relationships growing and not closing. She gets cross. It's not fair, Lord, she says. They judge me, but they don't even know what I believe, not properly. And they never give me a chance to show them just how much I love them and my grandchildren. Jilly is on the verge of giving up and asking God to do anything at all. She's no longer sure that he can. 
And then Jonas's situation is much more difficult. Jonas is uh, barely surviving in coastal Eritrea. He's been ostracized by his Muslim family and his town for believing in Jesus two years ago. No one will buy his fish. In fact, they're often ruined with gravel or gasoline. His stall's tipped over. And worse than that, masked vigilantes threw him in a shipping container two weeks ago and left him for 24 hours without food, water, or light. When they eventually let him out, he went straight to the police, but left not with their help, but with their scorn. As he walks home, Jonas thinks about praying, come Lord Jesus, but he just sighs. He thinks nothing is going to change. I wonder if you ever think like any of these three examples that I've given. Do we ever feel like prayer is pointless? Do we ever sometimes make the connection that prayerlessness in our own lives might just be, and I say might because there are other reasons, might just be connected to a lack of faith? In our lives. We've lost sight of who God is. We've lost our understanding of how God works. And maybe we feel like prayer is pointless or we feel like it, we might as well just give up. Maybe we already have. The truth of the matter is life in a fallen world is hard. It's often hard to understand why God doesn't give us what we ask for in prayer, so we stop we stop praying because beneath the surface, in some way, to some degree, we've stopped believing. Well, Jesus anticipates these very experiences. That's why he's teaching us in this parable what he teaches, what he taught his disciples back then. Always pray. Always pray. Never give up. Always pray and never give up. Always pray and never give up. You don't need to be a genius to figure out that this what this parable is about. You only have to look down at verse 1. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. The word then at the start of that sentence of course links us back to the previous passage that Pierre preached on last Sunday night, a passage about the second coming of Jesus Christ and what life will look like for people who call themselves disciples of the Lord Jesus while we wait for his return. In verse 21, Jesus says, look, it's going to be hard for you as disciples when you can't see tangibly in front of you the kingdom of God with your bare eyes, but trust me, it's there and it's growing. And then verse 22, he says, you know, I want you to long for this, but it's really hard to keep longing for something that you can't actually fix your eyes on, that you can't in a sense, see. It might seem like, even in your own heart, that the thing that you long for is never, ever going to come. But he says, trust me, it's coming. That day when I return and all that I'll bring with it is coming. And so what should believers, people whose faith and trust is in Jesus, do while we wait, while we live, while we long for that return? We always pray and never give up. Let's look at that in verses 2 to 8. We're going to look at verses 2 to 8 in two points. Number one, here's why we always pray and don't give up. God will do what is right for his chosen ones. That's point one. God will do what is right for his people. Verses 2 to 7. Now let's get into the parable. Verses 2 to 5. 
the parable basically shows us that, that there is a judge that does what is right for someone he could not care less about, okay? A judge does what is right for someone he couldn't care less about. In verse 2, let's meet the judge who couldn't care less. In a certain town, there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. What a combination that is. He didn't care about the prospect of standing before God in judgment. He didn't even care about the prospect of suffering shame in the eyes of his community. Now, that's really bad news for anyone in his position. I mean, if he is wicked and does what he pleases, if there's nothing that you can actually appeal to to convince him to do what's right, then what do you think you're going to get by getting to this, going to this judge? Certainly not justice. And that's bad news for the widow that we meet in verse 3. Here's the widow he couldn't care less about. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. Now see how sad this is. Read between the lines, friends. Get the context. She has no one to defend her. The fact that she's presenting herself shows that there's no husband, no son, no brother, no man in her life to help her. Women were only allowed in civil court back then if they were completely on her own. And she is. And that's tragic because, as the text says, she has an adversary, an enemy of some kind. Someone is exploiting her. In all likelihood, taking what is hers. Jesus, later in the Gospel of Luke, will condemn Pharisees who, as he says, devour widows' houses. In other words, make, they, they manipulate and exploit widows for their own personal and financial gain. That's in Luke 20. But if she's on her own and she's that destitute, then the justice that she pleads before this judge who couldn't care less is actually a matter of life and death. It's so sad. And especially when you think the backdrop to this of all of Scripture, you have the God of heaven and earth, the Almighty, who has expressed such deep and compassionate concern for widows himself, for the, the least, the last, the lost, the oppressed in society, and said, you've got to care for them, people. But the judge, who couldn't care less, refused her, verse 4. He had nothing to gain from it. From a woman who had nothing, he couldn't exactly extract a bribe. But that doesn't stop her. She doesn't give up. She kept coming. Now, you can just imagine this, can't you? Now, I don't think this means that she just kept coming to him wherever he sat in judgment. But I think, I think we should read into this that she just kept badgering him with the request. So you can imagine him turning from locking the door of the courtroom to find this wee widow standing there. Give me justice! You can imagine him scanning his shopping at Waitrose, hearing a tap at the window with her walking stick. Give me justice! You can imagine him opening the door to the men's loo at Nero's, scared out of his wits at the sight of her. Give me justice! Him pulling up his duvet, about to roll over to sleep, and hearing her yell from the street, give me justice. And her persistence paid off. Because when you look at verses 4 and 5, you get to read the thoughts, the inner mind of this judge who couldn't care less. And Jesus says, listen closely to this. Verse 4, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, so he's repeating that, nothing has changed about this man. 
Even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so she won't eventually come and attack me. So what makes him change his mind? It's not the plight of the woman. He's not even feeling a sense of compassion for her at all. He doesn't care about God, about others, about her, just himself. He's not been convinced by her case or even by her persistence. It's verse 5. It's the threat of what the woman will do to him. Now, verse 5 is actually difficult to translate. Literally, it talks about beating. It talks about getting black eyes. In 1 Corinthians 9, it's the, it's the same Greek word that Paul uses to describe how he, in a sense, beats his body into submission uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ in order to live for him. Now, the NIV that we read here translates it and does the interpretation for us, suggesting that she's about to put on her boxing gloves and give him a black eye. But other translators suggest that the black eye might be less to do with punching and more to do with losing sleep. Whatever it is, her constant coming is wearying him. And in any case, he's worn down and for his own sake, he's so selfish, this man, for his own sake, he'll see that she gets what she needs. He'll see that she gets justice. So the judge does what is right for someone he couldn't care less about. Less about. That's the parable. What's the point? Well, we read that in verses 6 to 7. Jesus explains. The point is that God does what is right for those he dearly loves. God does what is right in answering the prayers of those he dearly loves. Now, notice the point of this parable is not be like the persistent widow and beat God. Drive him insane by your constant intercession. It's not that at all. You can hear sermons preached like that all the time. That's not what it is. The parable isn't even about the widow. It's about the judge. And Jesus uses the judge to teach us something about God, not by comparison, but by contrast. This is what, if this is what this guy is like, well, you need to realize by contrast, this is what God is like, how much better he is. And the point is this. If a judge who couldn't care less does what is right by a widow who annoys him, how much more will God, who cannot but do what is right, do so for his chosen ones who cry out to him in prayer? That's the point. Let me unpack that a little bit, because this is what will encourage us to always pray and not give up. God always does what is right. God is not like the judge in the story. In stark and glorious contrast to this unjust judge, God is just and always does what is right, for he himself is just and good. To be just is, of course, to do everything according to what is right. And rightness, righteousness, is itself defined by him according to his character, his perfections, his glorious standard of his own perfect holiness. Indeed, by obligation to his own holiness, he cannot do anything but that which is perfectly good. 
That means, therefore, that we can trust Him, friends, even when it seems like in prayer we're not getting what we've asked for. God, if He denies us something we've requested, is definitely not being mean. It's impossible for Him to be that. God is good and will do what is right according to His perfect will. He does what is right for those He dearly loves. He's not just just and does what is right. He does what's just towards those who are his chosen ones. That's what verse 7 reminds us of. We are his chosen ones. Now, as I said a moment ago, that God is not like the judge in the story. In the same way, we're actually not like the widow in the story either. To the judge, she's an insignificant nobody. She's an annoyance. But that's not what we are to God, not in the slightest. We are his dearly loved children. That's what it actually means to be chosen. It means to be dearly loved. That's what Ephesians 1, 4, and 5 tell us, that love is what lies by, behind God's sovereign choice of his people. For he, that is God, chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight, in love, friends, in love, in love. He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. So jump back into this scene where Jesus is telling this story, this parable to his disciples and encouraging them that despite the fact they're going to be longing for something that feels like it's never going to come or living life in a fallen world which just feels like the hits keep coming, even when you pray and you feel like, what's the point? It's about time we just gave up. He's encouraging us to pray on the basis of our election. We're not insignificant nobodies to God if we are Christians. We are sons and daughters whom he has set his affection on effusively. And determined to save forever. It's absolutely beautiful. So our prayers, our cries, therefore, do not annoy him like the pestering of the widow. He is so lovely, our Lord. He is so patient and compassionate, so incredibly loving to the point that every time we come to him, he receives us with deep affection. I don't know what you think God is like when you come to him in prayer. Some of us, because we're conscious of our own guilt and shame, we feel like if we come before God, then he's kind of wincing like a, a, like a kid who's about to like, touch its first slug. You know, it's, it's kind of interesting but disgusting all at the same time. That's not the way he is with us. Or sometimes we think that God is just going to be angry with us for our sin. He's going to, so, as soon as we come anywhere near us, he's going to blast us away like some interrupted dad who's in the middle of something. But he doesn't. When we come to him in prayer, he reaches out to us. He receives us. He lifts us in his arms and listens to our cries every time they're offered again and again and again. And because we are chosen and dearly loved, Jesus asks, verse 6, will not God then bring about justice for his chosen ones? 
who cry out day and night to him. Will God not bring about justice for Jilly, who suffers this unfair, uneducated rejection of her on the basis of her faith by her children? Well, God will receive her. He will bring about justice for her. God will bring about justice for her. That's why Jilly, dearly loved, should always pray and never give up, no matter how hard it feels. And will not God bring about justice for Jonas, who suffers despairing persecution? Goodness. So much so he wonders if he's even got it in himself to survive for one more day. Will God bring about justice for Jonas? Yes, he will. Yes, he will. That's why Jonas, chosen in Christ, should always pray and never give up. Now, here's the tough bit. Jesus says, verse 8, I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. Quickly. You ever been in a despairing situation where you've prayed your heart out? And I mean prayed your heart out for something that's been a painful experience for you. Something that seems unfair, unjust. You're asking God to do what's right and it just doesn't happen. And you read the word quickly in a verse like this and you're like, huh, it's not my experience. But what does he mean by quickly? Does he mean that he'll give us whatever we ask for as soon as we've prayed it without delay? Like prayer works like some kind of vending machine or a drive-through. Order and go. Bing, bish, bash, bosh. Doesn't work that way. Is that what he means by quickly? No. I don't think Jesus is talking about getting instantaneous justice, like same-day delivery from the struggles that typify life in this fallen world. I mean, let's face it, God can do that, and sometimes God does do that. Uh, this congregation is full of people whose experience is just that, that they've been in a difficult situation facing something unjust, and God has done something mighty in answer to prayer to bring about some deliverance. But remember the context. Jesus isn't just teaching a general lesson on prayer, but on praying while we wait with longing for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Keep that in mind. It's very important for understanding this passage. But even in that, someone will say, well, that's taken ages as well. I mean, 2,000 years and we're still waiting. Well, I know that, and I think that's Jesus' point. Because it could well be that the justice we seek isn't satisfied while we're still alive. The wrongs done to us might not be righted right now, might not be righted next week, might not be righted by the time we die. But one day they will be righted according to the good and glorious justice of the Lord God himself. So what should we do when we find it hard to keep longing for something that's hard to see, that seems like it's never going to come? I mean, I don't, if you're anything like me, I'm terrible at waiting for stuff. I mean, just stand in front of me in a queue and you'll find out. But worse than that, what do we do when the world goes on as it does and we struggle with unsatisfied longings or experience even the horrible attitudes and actions of those who actually make life hard for believers? because we're believers. Well, Jesus says, 
have faith. He says, trust me, doesn't he? Just believe me, have faith. And always pray. And never give up. And this is point two, which is exceptionally shorter than point one. Verse eight, have faith in God and pray. Verse 8, when the Son of Man comes, this is a question, this is a searching question, will he find faith on earth? Now, if you're new to the Bible, when you hear Jesus say, the Son of Man, he's talking about himself. It's one of our favorite designations for himself. He's actually picking up on an Old Testament passage in Daniel 7 about, that describes God in glorious terms as if to say, that's me. He is the one with sovereign power and great glory. And he's the one who's going to come back and prove it in unmissable and unmistakable ways. Now, Jesus is mainly talking about a time beyond his death, resurrection, and ascension when he will return, when he's going to come back in all the ways that chapter 17 of Luke describes for us. But what does Jesus mean by this question when, he, when that happens, when he comes back like that? Will he find faith? What does that mean? Is he wondering if there's going to be any believers left by the time he comes back? Well, no, because Matthew 16 reminds us that the church will never be vanquished. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. The kingdom parables Jesus taught throughout Luke's gospel so far give us every indication that this gospel is going to grow and grow and grow, and more and more people are going to come to believe in him. The kingdom's going to grow, sorry. But Jesus, by asking this question, challenges every single one of us to be strong in our faith. Even when it feels like the prayers are just bouncing off the ceiling. To be full of trust in the one who loves his chosen one and assures us that he hears our cries. To be full of faith, even when life is hard, to say, do you know what? This is hard. But because of where my eyes are fixed, it is well with my soul, and this is for my good. Now, we might say, well, that sounds really great, but my faith is weak. How can we be strong in our faith? What does the text say? Go back to verse 1. It says, always pray and never give up. See what Jesus is doing? He's actually putting these two things together. Strength of faith and active prayer. We should always pray and never give up. As a church, certainly, and as individuals. I mean, as a church, we are to, we are to one another a means of grace. We've said that again and again and again and again from this pulpit over many, many years. God strengthens us in our faith when we gather to do the things that he calls us to do, like we're doing today. And if we feel weak, perhaps we're too disconnected from the body or disengaged when here. But we need to always pray and never give up praying when we gather like this. Indeed, I think we should be praying more than we do. But we should pray on other occasions too. 
in prayer meetings on Wednesdays before Sunday morning services, first Sunday of every month, small groups, even just informally when we're together, praying with one another, recognizing that actually this is what we do because it's A, a joy, but as we do it, we are, well, we're building up one another's faith. We're strengthening one another. It's an absolute privilege to do this together. In fact, as someone who struggled with prayer life at an individual level for many, many years in my Christian life, I find it one of the things that encourages me most and helps me in my prayer life is praying with other people. That may be the case for you too. And it may be that making the most of those occasions is the very thing that will help fuel that prayer life and strengthen your faith. But we should be those who pray on our own as individual believers. But then maybe some of us are like Connor that I spoke about at the start, where we've got tired of asking God for the things that we feel like he's just not given us. And we conclude he's either ignoring us like the grump who refuses to answer the door to kids at Halloween, or he's putting us off like the dad saying, five more minutes when the kids are standing there with a football and desperate to go to the park. Because we take his no as meanness, we question his love, we pray less. Or else we get distracted by the other things in this world that seem to bring us satisfaction. We become self-made people, thinking that we're finding solutions to our own problems, but it's foolishness. If Jesus came back today, would he find faith in Connor? If Jesus came back today, would he find faith in you or in me? The answer to that question, of course, according to Jesus, is found in answering the question, do you pray? Do you pray? And again, it's not that prayer, don't misunderstand me, I'm not saying that prayer somehow merits salvation or that uh, faith is credited every time you pray, but prayer is As one theologian has said, the chief exercise of one's faith, meaning it can readily be a gauge or a barometer of one's faith, which to me is thoroughly convicting. As a Christian, as a husband, as a dad, as a pastor, I know what needs to change in my household, having been convicted by this text. What about you? Listen, this isn't intended in the slightest to be a guilt trip. I'm just pointing out that Jesus wants people like us, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, to be so full of faith, to always pray and not give up, and to be encouraged to do that, not by a stern, do better, do better, but by an inviting look at the Lord and a fresh consideration of his loving and compassionate concern for us and his eagerness to do justice for us, to do what it's right by us, the ones who are chosen and dearly loved. And plus, this Jesus who invites us to have faith and show it is the same one of whom it is said, a bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In other words, he doesn't despise our weakness. He knows all about it. He doesn't flick us away 
as a nuisance or a, or a fake or for being puny. He receives us in love. He draws us in his compassion, which, by the way, he's maxed out at, and invites us to repent under his welcoming grace for all of our failings and live in the light of his impeccable, unconditional, and absolutely glorious love. That's what this text says. Jesus invites us to have faith and show it. And to trust him for this forgiveness in our repentance and this practice in our praying because he's the one who died for our sins. He's the one who paid the price for every failing in prayer, friends. And he's the one who by his cross, as Romans 5 reminds us, gives us that constant demonstration, this constant ongoing demonstration of his love for us. He died for our sins. He rose to give us life so that he could prove himself to be just and the justifier of his chosen ones and says to us, I'm coming back. Keep the faith. Always pray, friends, and never give up. Let's bow our heads. Please just take the next 30 seconds to pray your own prayers in yourself, and then I'll lead us. Pray in response. Our Father, we thank you for this encouragement given us by the Lord Jesus Christ to always pray and never give up, to do so with hearts full of faith in you, with eyes fixed on you and a clear understanding in our minds that you're not like an unjust judge who couldn't care less. You're our glorious God and you couldn't care for us more than you do. Goodness, what demonstrations you've given us that especially in the giving of your son. In his name, we seek your forgiveness for all the ways that we've lacked faith and not prayed. And in faith, we receive forgiveness. In faith, we fix our eyes on you again. In faith, we fix our eyes and our hearts with longing on his return. While we wait, help us. Strengthen us together in our faith in Jesus' name. Amen.
Well, the song we're going to sing to close is a song about the resolve of forgiven sinners like us to live by faith until the coming of Christ. Let's stand and sing it as